Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series, Walking Through the Book of Deuteronomy, and here the team will be in Deuteronomy chapter 12. Before we jump into the episode, we wanted to invite you again to check out the Theopolis app. That app is normally $7 a month, but to celebrate 10 years of our work, we are offering the first month of the app for just $1 during the month of July. So please sign up and enjoy everything that that app has to offer, all of the eBooks and conferences and audio lectures and Bible commentary, video series, and more. To do that, just click the link down there in the show notes to create an account and use the discount code Theopolis10 at checkout. That's Theopolis10 to receive that discount on your first month. We really hope that you enjoy it. We really hope that you enjoy this episode and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and Jeff Myers discussing Deuteronomy chapter 12. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers. Brian Motes is assisting us by recording, and uh, by, he will be editing and cleaning everything up for distribution. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we are making our way through the book of Deuteronomy. We're nearing the middle section of Deuteronomy. We'll be talking about Deuteronomy 12 today. Uh, we've been taking basically one chapter at a time. Uh, and as we have discussed in the past, the bulk of Deuteronomy is laid out according to the order of the 10 words. The 10 words are given in Deuteronomy 5 in a slightly different way than they're given in Exodus 20. Uh, but that uh, restatement of the 10 words sets the pattern for what happens after. Uh, and chapter 6 or 11, which we just finished in the last episode, that's the first commandment section, but um, uh, it's given a, a great deal of attention. It's uh, it's a kind of the master commandment. Uh, and lots of other commandments make their appearance within that first word section. Having no other gods before the God of the Exodus, thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's kind of a uh, an overarching commandment that uh, includes all of the others in the way that uh, Deuteronomy is put together highlights that. As we get to chapter 12, we're entering the second word section. And chapters 12 and 13, uh, at least in my reckoning, I think the reckoning that we kind of agreed on at the beginning of our series uh, chapters 12 and 13 cover the second word section, uh, which doesn't have to do with the question of who is being worshipped, but rather questions of how um, how we worship. And in chapter 12, the issue is the place of worship and some other consequences that flow from the determination of the place of worship. Uh, chapter 13, although it has to do with warnings about being uh, drawn away from uh, obeying and worshipping and, and, and serving Yahweh, uh, the focus is really on people who are drawing Israel away. So it's focusing on kind of religious leaders and mediators. And so then again, that comes under the heading of the of the second word. The second word is not just about images uh, as it is in the statement of the 10 words, but it broadens out to include uh, the manner of worship in other kinds of ways. Chapter 12 is the beginning of a long section of Deuteronomy. Uh, it begins, these are the statutes and judgments which you, which, you, which you shall guard to do. That's my translation of the first clause of chapter 12. And that language of statutes and judgments or rituals and judgments, that has appeared a good bit in the previous 11 chapters, but it's not used again until chapter 26, verse 16, which kind of closes out the 10, the 10 words section of Deuteronomy. So this is initiating a large chunk of Deuteronomy. The first word is again is kind of isolated, is set apart as a as a as a master commandment, and then uh, the the second through the tenth word are given more detailed treatment in chapters twelve through twenty six. Uh, this is the chapter. Chapter twelve is the chapter that deals with the celebrated idea of centralization of the sanctuary. Uh, that there's uh, uh, all uh, local sanctuaries are to be shut down. You can't build an altar any place you want and offer sacrifice. There's going to be one place where sacrifice is offered. Uh, it's a place that God's going to choose, and that's where Israel's supposed to bring all of their offerings and all of their sacrifices, and that's where they're supposed to have their festivals. Uh, this is this is called centralization. I, that's a term that I've used for a long time, but as I thought about this chapter, uh, that seems to buy into the critical reading of this chapter. Uh, Deuteronomy 12 is really the hinge of um, the critical dating of the Pentateuch. 
uh, what you need in the in the in the dating of the Pentateuch, if you're not going if you're not going to believe that Moses is responsible for the books that we have, uh, he's not responsible for Deuteronomy. He didn't preach these sermons. Uh, he didn't really preach these sermons. If you uh, leave that assumption, uh, then you have to find some kind of fixed date for the different documents that are proposed for the critical reading of the Pentateuch. Uh, and Deuteronomy 12 is kind of a uh, is kind of a fixed point of the dating. Uh, because Deuteronomy 12, with the centralization of the sanctuary, on the critical reading, this really is a centralization. Uh, Deuteronomy is the product of the time of Josiah. Uh, Josiah found, with uh, inverted inverted uh, commas, quotation marks, he found, discovered the book of the law in the temple. What in fact happened was he commissioned some priests to compose the book of the law, the book of Deuteronomy, which included centrally the centralization of the sanctuary. Um, and this is kind of a conspiracy in, in critical theory, uh, critical readings of the Pentateuch, that the, the priests and the Levites are always the villains. They're out for power. And so centralizing the sanctuary, closing down all of the shrines that are scattered around the land means you're depriving those shrines of wealth. You're depriving those shrines of prestige, and you're centralizing all the priestly power and all the priestly wealth, all the wealth that comes from tithes and offerings and firstborn and all that. That's all being centralized in Jerusalem, and that's Josiah's plan, guided by these villainous priests who are trying to capitalize on this. So that, that's the scenario in the critical reading. In Deuteronomy 12, as it's actually written, it's not really a centralization. It's rather a shift that happens as Israel enters the land. Israel in the wilderness has had the tabernacle at the center of their camp. Once they get into the land, that arrangement continues in a sense, because now they have a sanctuary in the center of the land, in a chosen place in the land. What's But what's happened is that the people have been scattered. In the wilderness, all the Israelites are nearby the, the tabernacle. They're all in the camp. Uh, and so if they want to offer a sacrifice, all they have to do is walk to the center of the camp, and there's the tabernacle. Uh, and it may take you know 15 minutes to walk to the center of the camp, but it's not like you have to travel for a couple of days in order to get the sanctuary. Now when Israel enters the land and they scatter, uh, what what are they to do? And the the rule is that there is one sanctuary, and the Lord's going to choose the place, uh, and uh, that's where the Lord is. Uh, that's where sacrifices and offerings and fest festivals are going to take place. In a sense, this is this is one stage of a of a process, a series of uh, stages that takes place after the Exodus in the wilderness. Israel, all the Israelites are in the vicinity of the of the tabernacle. It's right in the center of the camp. They're all within easy distance of the tabernacle. Once they get into the land, they scatter to the four corners of the land, and now they're at a greater distance, and they have to they have to travel. They have to go on pilgrimage in order to come to the tabernacle, uh, come to the tabernacle, come to the sanctuary. That's a new thing. Uh, and then you can think of the time of the exile as a further scattering. With the exile, they're not only to the four corners of the land, but they're driven to the four winds of heaven. Now they're out among the Gentiles. And some of them continue to make pilgrimages back to the temple once it's rebuilt. Uh, but the practice now is more to pray toward the temple, and um, the difficulty of uh, of, tra of traveling becomes even more acute. And I think in some sense, we can see that as a kind of maturation of Israel. Israel is Yahweh's son. That's one of the key themes of Deuteronomy, as we saw a number of weeks ago when uh, Ralph Smith joined us for a podcast. Uh, Israel is Yahweh's son. Uh, when Israel is a child, soon after its birth in the Exodus, Israel stays near its its father's house. The, the son is in the vicinity of his father's house. Once, once they enter the land, uh, Israel goes out further from the father's house. Uh, now they're on their own out in the land. And then at the exile, even though the exile is a judgment, it's also in another sense a further step of maturation as Israel migrates out among the Gentiles, which is uh, it's part of their mission from the beginning is to witness to the Gentiles, to call the Gentiles to worship the true God, to be a light to the Gentiles. That's been their mission from the beginning. And with the exile, they're put right in direct contact with the Gentiles, and they reach a higher stage of maturity. So even though you have different uh, different dynamics going on, that movement from the wilderness setting to the land to the diaspora um, is a is a kind of mission program that anticipates the mission program of the church, which as Acts 1 puts it, as Jesus puts it in Acts 1, begins in Jerusalem, in Judea, to Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Israel's already kind of doing that through the course of her history.
one last point I wanted to uh, note before we before I open it up, and that is, it seems to me there's a flood typology running here, and I'm thinking particularly of the regulations concerning the sanctuary uh, and the different la- the language that's used there. The central sanctuary is going to be chosen when it, when the Lord gives Israel rest in the land. Rest is a theme of the flood narrative. It's Noah's name. Uh, and the word used for rest here in Deuteronomy 12, it contains the root of Noah's name. Once they have rest in the land, then they go to the uh, to the central sanctuary and they offer sacrifice. They eat and drink and rejoice. There's also rules in chapter 12 about slaughtering and eating meat. And of course, that's a post-flood phenomenon. Noah's given permission to eat meat. And then the prohibition of blood begins in, in Genesis 9 after the flood. It's reiterated for Israel in Leviticus 17. It's reiterated here uh, when Israel goes out and begins to begins to uh, slaughter meat and eat meat away from the central sanctuary. Uh, they still have um, they still have to refrain from eating blood. That that rule still pertains. So, um, the typology looks like this to me: that uh, Israel's entry into the land is a kind of flood. The Canaanites and then the seven nations of the land of Canaan are destroyed and flooded. Uh, and then Israel is given rest in the land like a new Adamic humanity, a Noahic humanity, which is a new Adamic humanity. They have rest in the land. They eat meat in the land. They refrain from blood in the land. They offer sacrifice in the land. They're the king of the land as Noah is the elevated, glorified Adamic king of the world after the flood. And so you have this kind of flood typology that seems to be running in the background of this passage. Peter, just to add one more element to your flood typology, at the end of um, the last chapter, chapter 11, which I still maintain that we didn't complete despite your insistence otherwise, um, God says he will lay the fear and the dread um, of uh, of you on um, all the land that you shall tread upon. And so that, that seems to be um, a large part of what's driving this conquest. So that's obviously looking back to... Um, Genesis 9 and, and the covenant that the um, fear and dread of man will fall upon the animals. Right. So, it's a, but it's a, it's an enhancement in a sense because Noah's uh, Noah uh, projects fear or causes fear in animals to take dominion over them. Israel is now ruling men and the fear and dread of them is going to fall on the Canaanites. Hmm. Uh, Peter, just a quick note about your point about this being the transition from the wilderness to the land and that making sense of the centralization of the sanctuary, you don't have to uh, uh, project this back or project this up into the time of Josiah or the Kings. That's that view is really embedded in the text. So in verse eight, it's very clear. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today. So you're not going to carry on like you're doing today, everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. Now, that doesn't necessarily refer to sinful actions that Israel's doing. I mean, that phrase is used later on the judges, and we tend to associate that with sinful actions, although it's not always the case even in judges. But the the Israelites have been making these decisions about what to eat, where to eat it in the wilderness with regard to you know, worshiping Yahweh, but now the practice is going to be made uniform. Verse nine, for you have not yet as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that Yahweh your God is giving you. But when you go over to the Jordan and live in the land, then all of this is going to come to pass. So I think if a careful, careful attention to the text itself shows us that during the wilderness period, all sorts of things were going on that are not going to be continued once you get in the land. And, and one of those, by the way, and I think I'm right about this, but I'll solicit your guys' opinion, is that in Leviticus 17, the first part of Leviticus 17, it appears like there's a prohibition in the wilderness uh, against animals being uh, sacrificed anywhere. Uh, all animals had to be sacrificed at the tabernacle and also apparently eaten uh, there as well. But once you get in the promised land, you could slaughter throughout the land any animals you intended to eat uh, and not just for sacrificial meals. So there's all sorts of of changes that are happening now that Israel is coming out of the wilderness into the land and the centralization of sanctuary 
is is part of that. Yeah, I, th- I think both of those points are right. The the point that uh, there's a there's a contrast between what's happening now and what will happen once they enter the land. That's that's the that's the way that this is stated, and it's not it's not condemning the way things are now. I, one possibility, I guess, is that Israel has had a, a sanctuary in the in the uh, with the tabernacle, but that tabernacle has moved from place to place. And that's one of the things that's no longer going to happen when they enter the land. The, the tabernacle is going to be set at a place, initially at Shiloh, uh, and it's going to be there. It's going to be there for a couple of centuries through the period of the uh, from the uh, from the time of uh, Joshua until the early part of the uh, early part of the uh, monarchy, um, or the last part of the time of the judges. So uh, it's going to be in one place. So the the many places is not just in contrast to. You know, you set up an altar wherever you, wherever the Lord appears to you, like Abraham does. But it's the the one sanctuary, the one place, the tabernacle that's mobile through the wilderness. And the other, I think you're right too about the uh, the slaughter and eating of uh, in in the wilderness as opposed to the land. I think that's uh, we'll we'll come back and touch on that uh, a little bit later. I think, but I think that's right that there's a there's a significant shift in that uh, in. I mean, you could talk about it as uh, profane slaughter. Uh, profane slaughter is outlawed while they're in the wilderness, at least for sacrificial animals, which means dom- basically domesticated animals of the herd and flock. But once they get into the land, then you have this kind of profane slaughter that's permitted. It's probably worth reflecting upon the way in which their conviction and commitment to the Lord as one and to monotheism needed to be embedded within certain practices that maintain that truth. If you did not have a central sanctuary, it would be very easy to have private altars that would lead to a domestication of God, the God of the household, a God who would be at the disposal of each great house or clan. And then you could have a territorial God tied to various locations. And there's something about the characteristic of, um, something characteristic of polytheism that arises from certain practices of worship and organically would um, emerge from a practice without a central sanctuary. And so Israel's centralized worship and site of sacrifice is connected to its monotheism. There's one God and consequently worship must be unified. There's not all these different um, vernacular cults in different regions and there's um, not a variety of um, different lords. There's a lord of the hill country, there's a lord of the plains, there's a lord of the Jordan Valley, there's a lord of all these different regions. There's one lord, and he's, um, his presence is not so much something that arises from a particular location in the land. He comes to dwell in the land in the midst of his people, and that presence is conceived of very differently from the sort of presence of God that is seen when Israel worships under every, on every high hill and under every green tree, as we have um, the description later on in Scripture, this um, sense of sacred locations within the land itself, arising from the very geographical and topographical features. That's not the sort of worship that they're practicing but it's one that they would easily be tempted into if they did not have a central site of worship. Yeah, and that, that language, of course, appears here in Deuteronomy 12, uh, in verse 2, and it's describing the practices of the nations that Israel is supposed to displace. They uh, serve their gods on high mountains, hills, under every green tree. Yeah, it's obviously a, a polytheistic system where uh, they, they set up these kind of uh, false Edens around the land, hills and mountains, and green places uh, where they can, where they worship their gods. So here's a question in terms of just application as I'm reflecting on this myself and Elser has brought it up. So I'll, I'll uh, ask you guys um, the rationale for a centralized sanctuary for Israel. And all these, all these reasons I think surely make sense, especially in terms of Canaanite decentralized, uh, shrine worship all around the land, um, and the need for uh, centralization so that you don't domesticate God and turn him into your own little private deity. Understood. Um, 
Is, but is, is that something that the Israelites needed at this phase of their uh, growth, of their maturation, of their history? And what, what does that mean for us? Um, how do we apply this to ourselves? Because I think then about John 4 and Jesus uh, decentralizing worship from uh, Jerusalem uh, and wherever the Spirit gathers people together. There we have worship, confession of the true God. And you look at the you looked at the fracturing and the splintering and the the way that the Christian faith is often often tailored to particular people, families, nations. And I understand that can be a positive thing, but oftentimes it's not. And so we have all these all these various um I don't know, denominations and, and groups. Um, is there something to the fact that maybe in, at least in certain geographical areas, there ought to be some sort of centralized, I don't know, place, some, something that people look to that keeps, keeps some kind of unity so that people don't splinter off into all these um, competing kinds of, interest religious interest i think you guys know what i'm saying i'm trying i'm trying to i'm just wondering uh if if this centralized if, if, if it's about the land obviously it's about israel obviously it's about this time obviously and the old world is 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 passed away i get that but what is there for us here or is it maybe just part of a theology of place because there's a lot of emphasis here on destroying these places and putting a new place uh, where the Lord is present, where Yahweh is present. What, what do we do with this for, you know, for the Christian church? Yeah, I know what you're getting at, Jeff. You're trying to make us all Roman Catholics. This is, a, this is an exhortation to swim the Tiber and acknowledge that there is one central location, one central sanctuary. Yeah, yeah, put it out on still. Put it on social media. Yeah. Put it on social media, please. Twitter it or something. Yeah, that's right. That's what I'm doing. Just a couple of things. uh, uh, In terms of the Old Testament context, I I think Alistair is exactly right that this is, uh, this is a, it's a kind of uh, ritualized polemic against the localization of God to a particular place, um, which we've seen um, Old Testament pagans doing. He, you know, he's a god of the he's a god of the hills, not a god of the plains. So we'll fight on the plains, or the opposite. I can't remember which. So um, I think that's right. The other thing I think is going on here is kind of a, uh, seems like a, an overarching structure of the entire Old Testament system. If you start with Eden, Eden becomes a kind of a sacred place, a restricted place. Uh, after Adam's fall, there's cherubim guardians that are placed there. Nobody nobody goes in there. Uh, there is one place where everybody goes to offer sacrifice in the early history of humanity, and it seems like there's uh, that the the whole idea of sacred space is is involved in this in the uniqueness of the place where God dwells. Um, I think that that's part of it too. And then thinking into the new covenant, I, uh, my thought has always been that uh, we we still have a central sanctuary, but the central sanctuary is now a heavenly one, which is you could say equidistant from all earthly locations. So every community of believers that gathers together uh, in the spirit is gathered together in heavenly places in the one sanctuary where that is Jesus, that is the realm of the spirit where Jesus distributes his gifts. Uh, but that means by by elevating and taking, taking the uh, sanctuary out of this earthly realm you universalize it in a sense because it can it can now be anywhere and you don't have to make a pilgrimage to Rome or Constantinople or somewhere else in order to be at the center of of the church. The center of the church is a heavenly center and all all places are linked. I don't know if that's if that answers the kind of question you're getting at, but that's 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 how I see the the movement from old to like a couple of thoughts along the same lines that may or may not be helpful. I'll I'll let you be the judge but i think part of the principle at stake here has to do very much with um god's sovereignty um authority and what he has ordained so the the one place here is 
specifically the place which the Lord your God will choose. And it's therefore set against, on the one hand, men doing what's right in their own um, eyes or people doing you know these rights. And on the other hand, the idea of it seems that the Canaanites worshipped God just in any way which was convenient, you know, under a green tree, perhaps a high place here and, and there, etc. And and so there's that um contrast. And I do then wonder if there's something to the idea of the movement that we have within Deuteronomy from images to kind of word and to something which is therefore more internalized, less tangible, um, and and therefore more delocalized in in a sense. So, you know, the idols are going to be torn down and God has made it abundantly clear that when he appeared to Israel, he didn't appear as some visible sight, at least to all Israel, but via verbal inspiration as a voice, etc. And now Israel are going to, in a sense, inscribe and put that word all over Canaan. They're going to write it on their uh, doorposts. They're going to recite it. They're going to put a blessing and a curse up again uh, that we didn't cover at the end of chapter 11. They're going to put copies of God's word all, all over the place. And so I wonder if there, you can see something of the way in which the church can be bound together by one thing, by a word, um, and the uh, kind of that can be seen as some sort of outworking of the um, direction of travel in Deuteronomy itself. I, I, I don't know what you make of that. Yeah, I think that's helpful, James. Uh, the, I, I, I guess it's important also remember that along with the centralization of the sanctuary, the Lord's presence in the tabernacle, wherever it will will be in, in Shiloh uh, here, first of all, there's also a some decentralization of the word as you talk about in Israel. There are priests scattered all through the land, uh, and they're within, uh, I think the language here is within within their gates, they have priests. And those priests surely uh, administer, lead uh, people on their weekly Sabbath um, feasts, which uh, Leviticus 23 tells us happens. It's a holy convocation. It's a gathering. It's a feast day. So there is this decentralization of the word. And as the Levitical system develops, of course, it is a word-centered uh, kind of service uh, because there's no sacrifices. There's no animals being slaughtered in these towns. They have to be slaughtered at the central sanctuary. So um, there is that. And I guess that has to be part of this mix as well. The, the The prohibition is against the sacrificial or the, the offerings or the, the near bringings, the korban. Uh, that has to be at the uh, central place of worship. But uh, there's all sorts of other worship, all sorts of other uh, prayer, praise, eating, feasting going on all across the land and every week and not necessarily only at the central sanctuary. One thing I'd be curious to discuss is the way in which this might relate and contrast with the practice of Abraham going throughout the land and in various locations setting up altars and sites of worship. Um, it seems here that the sort of practice that we see in that more patriarchal period is no longer legitimate. Um, there are elements, it seems, where it there are ways in which that continues to some extent after the um, removal of the tabernacle system and before the, the rise of the temple system. But it does seem that there's a movement beyond the patriarchal stage here and the sorts of sacrifice and worship that were legitimate within it. Yeah, I think that's right. That this is what Abraham did is no longer being allowed. Um, now that Israel is entering the land and occupying it, um, they're no longer sojourners in the land. Uh, and uh, part of this is, you know, this gets into the question of how we understand the language of the Lord establishing a place for his name. I mean, um, Abraham and the other patriarchs set up altars in in part, or altars or pillars, when Yahweh appeared to them. Yahweh appears in a certain place, and there's an altar to mark the place and to worship God where he appears. 
there's a, Jacob does the same at Bethel when uh, he sets up a pillar after he's seen the dream and knows that it's the gate of God um, and so on. So the uh, that's being discontinued, but um, it seems like what's happening in Deuteronomy. I, I take the placing of the name, it's often taken to be as kind of a distancing idea that God is not actually dwelling in the tabernacle. He's not actually dwelling in the sanctuary, uh, but rather he, just his name is there. He's identifying it with himself, but not actually present there. I don't think that really fits the language. Verse 5, which actually uses establish his name there, ends that clause, establish his name for his dwelling. Uh, and then when Israel gathers to eat and drink at the central sanctuary, they eat and drink before the Lord, before the face of the Lord. So there's uh, language that suggests God is present there. And what, what it looks like is happening is that God has chosen, God is going to choose a place, and he's going to be present through his name there. Uh, and he's not going to pop up on all these different places. Uh, theophanies are not going to be happening. It's going to be happening in that one location. Uh, and I, I, I do think that, that um, go back to Jeff's question, I do think that's a, a stage of the development or maturation of Israel. Part of it would be what I suggested earlier, that Israel is now being led out of its father's house and they're going more distant. They're not in their father's presence all the time. Uh, and they're uh, living outside of the immediate presence of the name. But uh, there, there's some other, uh, there's probably some other dimension to that too, that uh, Israel is now being given a, a Yahweh is deciding on a specific location where he's going to be, his name is going to be present. Uh, yeah. In addition to that, Peter, uh, the name being associated with the central sanctuary, I think we need to remember all the way back to the end of Exodus 20, when uh, after the 10, after the 10 words, the Lord gives this instruction about altars, about uh, the communion sites, and they're to, they're going to sacrifice on it. Their ascensions and peace offerings or Zabach, uh, sheep and oxen in every place where I cause my name to be memorialized, I will come to you and bless you. Now, of course, uh, throughout the wilderness, there's lots of different places where the Lord's name can be memorialized and he will come and bless them. But now uh, the, the Lord's, the Lord's name is memorialized. Remember, Yahweh is the covenant, covenant name of God. And when you, when you call out to him, he remembers his covenant and blesses you so that all of these, all of these uh, sacrifices uh, or offerings or korban, whatever you want to call them, all the animals that are brought near and draw uh, at the at the altar, they are all memorials, um, so that um, the Lord's name is being memorialized. And then uh, the promise is that when you do that and you do it in the right way, and you do it at the right place, then the Lord will bless you, and that's where you gather, you assemble together to do that and rejoice um, together at what the Lord promises to do. Yeah, that kind of thing. I, th I think that's, I think that needs to remember too about the name. It's, it's a memorial name, Yahweh is. So um, doesn't all this raise the question of when we think this whole, um, let's call it this, the one place regime is actually meant to begin um, according to this command? Because I mean, Part of the difficulty is that we obviously have high places and sacrifices made by um, Samuel. You know, Gideon is um, commanded to make an altar um, where there used to be an Asherah um, altar, and in fact, commanded explicitly by the Lord. Um, and so I guess I, I'm thinking, and I'd be interested to know what, what, what you think, if we can have a kind of interim period between entering the conquest land and between this one place regime. Um, so God talks about him seeking um, a place to put his name, which could sound to me like a process. And then we've got the quite interesting text. I can't remember exactly where it is now, but when uh, 2 Samuel 7, I think, when um David is talking about um, how he's going to make a temple. The Lord says, I, I have been walking around in a tent, effectively, doesn't he? Um, what is it? I think. Uh, so I've been 
walking around in a tent and a sanctuary. Um, but now the time has come to build me a house, effectively, God is um, saying. And so I wonder, kind of picking up on your comments, Jeff and Peter, earlier, if we can have this transition between wandering, if you like, on the Lord's behalf, walking around and settling in one place that he has searched out, I wonder if we can have that at the time of David rather than at the time um, of immediately Israel entering the promised land and that that period of the judges, um, again, in that same place in 2 Samuel 7, God says, uh, um, I, I didn't prompt any of the judges to build me a, a house like this. So I wonder if we can have that as a sort of interim period, or almost analogous to the interim between when the early church is breaking bread daily and before it crystallising into this kind of on the first day of the week um, uh, memorial. So, yeah, what do you think? If I could add something to that, it seems significant that, as Jeff mentioned earlier on, the expression, you shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes, that key expression in relationship to the sort of worship that was occurring at that time in the wilderness. And that expression being picked up in Judges, where it becomes a theme expression in the closing chapters from 17 to 21, where in each one of those chapters it's used as a thematic expression at the beginning or end of the chapter. It seems that there's at least an implicit judgment upon that period the fact that they are continuing to do what is right in their own eyes, that there has not yet been a settling down into a central site of worship, whether that's more a matter of um, judgment upon the fact that they've just proven themselves unready for this and that the Lord has not yet settled down to a particular location because of their sin and immaturity, or whether it's because they were expected to set up a central site um, it seems perhaps most likely um, it's the former, but I'd be curious to add that to the mix and see what you think. Yeah, I think that in answer to James's question, the, the language of you've come to rest and the Lord has chosen a place for his name, that language comes into play with the building of the temple. And it's not there with the erection of uh, the sanctuary at Shiloh. I don't believe that there's a, a mention of name or necessarily the Lord's choosing that place in Joshua. And I'd have to go check the passage to make sure, but that's definitely explicit when you're talking about the temple. So, and, and David is the one who brings rest. Solomon inherits that rest. So that language of Sabbath in the land is uh, kicks into gear. Uh, the, the reservation I have, um, uh, and I, I think Alistair's point about the, the, the phrasing, everyone did what is right in his own eyes. I do think that that's an allusion back to Deuteronomy 12. In, judge, in the context of judges, it looks like a statement about political anarchy, but I think in the light of Deuteronomy 12, it's about liturgical anarchy. Um, so maybe that characterizes the whole time of the judges. Uh, and uh, it's, yeah, it's, an, it's a statement that they don't yet have or have refused to acknowledge the central sanctuary. And I, I'm, the way I've read it in the past, I was inclined to think of it the second, in the second way. They had a sanctuary at Shiloh. Uh, by the time early life of Samuel, that's being called a temple in the, for early chapters of 1 Samuel, even though it's a tabernacle, but it's grown up into a kind of a permanent site. But there's not the language of rest. There's not the language. Obviously, Israel does not have rest during the time of the judges. So I guess in answer to your larger question, James, my answer would be yes, it, it's exactly right that there is a process. Before Israel is explicitly said to have the rest that Deuteronomy 12 talks about, uh, it's the end of the time of the judges and the beginning of the reign of David, or the after the reign, after the uh, the conquests and the wars of David, that's when they eventually have rest. So definitely, there's a process involved before they reach that explicit official kind of state. I had Please, a thought about. Oh, I was only going to say just a quick point. I mean, I just bashed into some Bible software searching for um, sort of Shem, so you know, searching for name and Bachar choosing, and you get this very often in Deuteronomy and then a big sort of gap from there and a jump all the way to one Kings eight. So there does right. seem to be, yeah, some, some temple focus of that. Yeah. Right. I want to go in a slightly different direction and, and uh, thinking about the early verses of chapter 12, 
Moses has already talked about the conquest. He's used almost identical language to describe it. Smashing, uh, tearing down altars, uh, smashing pillars, burning asherim, cutting down images, obliterating the name. That's that's uh, language is used. Some of that language is used back in chapter seven to describe the conquest. But in in this context, I think that in the context of chapter twelve, it takes on a couple of other dimensions. One is obviously the end of verse three: "You shall obliterate their name from the, that place." That's preparing for the fact that the Lord is going to settle His name in the place that He chooses. So the uh, the names of uh, the other gods are eliminated and purged from the land so that Yahweh can set his own name in the place that he chooses. There's that play with the idea of setting a name. And then it uh, more implicitly and subtly and uh, speculatively, I, I wonder if there's almost a, a kind of preparation of the land uh, as a kind of a large-scale altar space. Uh, and I say that partly because of what is said at the end of the chapter about blood when they go into the land and they have settled in the land, the Lord has chosen his his place, and they say they want to eat meat. They can eat meat in their in their homes in their gates, but they have to pour the blood out on the ground. That blood in Leviticus 17, when they were in the wilderness, that blood would be put on the altar. Uh, and there's a reference to blood and flesh on the altar here in the in the uh, in the chapter verse 27. When you offer a sacrifice, then you have to put blood and flesh on the altar. But in the other in the other occasion, when you have profane slaughter, uh, you have pouring out of blood on the ground, uh, which seems to treat the ground as a kind of kind of altar space, or maybe the maybe the the whole land becomes a kind of forecourt for the central sanctuary. So that and that's the kind of that's the kind of liturgical theological justification for extending sacri- not sacrifice but slaughter, extending slaughter to. Uh, local local places, as long as the blood is poured out. Uh, thoughts about th- that idea of the, the so the idea of the, the part of it is too that I go back going back to the beginning of the chapter, the description of what they do to all of these pagan sites sounds like a kind of sacrificial procedure. Uh, you're tearing things down, you're smashing them, you're burning them, uh, you're uh, obliterating the name. So there's a there's a kind of tearing apart and and burning and dis- destroying this feels kind of a, like a sacrificial procedure. And that clears the ground for the Lord to set his name. But when the Lord sets his name, that has an impact on the whole land. And the whole land, in a sense, becomes capable of receiving the blood of slaughter. But one, one way to, uh, one implication of that would be to say that uh, Deuteronomy is functioning, it's, when it's treating life in the land, it's functioning on a kind of new covenant idea of sacrifice. Israel Israel's entire life, as Romans 12 puts it, Israel's entire life is a life of living sacrifice because the land is an altar and their whole life is offered up to God as as a sweet-smelling aroma, not just what they're offering at the sanctuary. Yeah, I wonder if kind of uh, if some measure of support for that idea, Peter, is, is brought out by this, uh, these references, I can't find them now, to uh, verse 15 and, and onwards to the unclean and the clean may eat of it. So this is now talking about kind of the slaughtering of meat in um, in the land, you know, in any of your uh, towns. And there's, um, I mean, okay, on the one hand, there's not sort of full cultic restrictions there because unclean and uh, clean alike can eat, eat of this. But at the same time, you know, as it's going out from the one place, there is still then this notion of clean and unclean. And and so as, um, again, I can't find where it is, but as the Lord enlarges your borders, um, it, it says it, it does seem as if this idea of holiness then is, is sort of expanding outwards. Yeah, that's verse 20. Oh, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I guess going back to one of Jeff's uh, earlier comments, that uh, the fact that there's eating meats, which has been restricted to the sanctuary, uh, in Leviticus is now extended uh, elsewhere, and I think I guess it. I mean, did Israel in the wilderness? This is a question. I'm going to make a claim, but it's there's a question mark lurking above it. Um, Israel in the wilderness, if they had game, wild game, uh, gazelles and uh, roebucks and that kind of thing, if they ate that, they would have not brought that to the to the altar. 
because you don't put you don't put wild game you don't bring wild game into the sanctuary you don't put wild game blood on the altar uh what's what's leviticus 17 is talking about is domesticated sacrificial animals that are so basically cattle sheep goats that those are the categories uh, if you're going to eat that, then you have to bring that to the altar. And that's what's that's what's being given permission. And so at, at a distance from the sanctuary, Deuteronomy 12 says, at a distance from the sanctuary, eating beef or mutton becomes just like eating venison. Did I take away what you were going to say, Jeff? No, I, I was just going to, I think that's right. That's the way I've read this is that um, – <clears throat> What you were able to do with the gazelle and the deer in the wilderness, that is slaughter it and eat it, you are now able to do even with uh, domesticated sacrificial animals in the land. Uh, so that's that's one of the transitions, I think, here, as long as you don't eat the blood. I don't want to stray um, too far afield because I'm conscious that we haven't sort of started going through the... Um, Verses as yet, but it does seem interesting to me that there are these provisions throughout the chapter of what to do in certain situations. So, you know, if the um, tabernacle or, or I guess possibly the temple is too far away, um, then you may do this according to the blessing that the Lord has given you. And it just strikes me that in various New Testament passages, the burdensome nature of the law is very much stressed. And then in Peter, for instance, you know, a burden that neither us nor our fathers were able to bear. Why did we want to yoke um, the the Gentiles with this? Um, And yet in the law itself, um, there seems to be provision to make it not burdensome in in that way. And it it does then seem that the burdensome nature of the law is, it does have certain intrinsic elements um, but it does seem at the same time to be something that's been made and something that it's become rather than something it was inherently meant to be. Yeah. I'd acknowledge the burdensomeness of it. Uh, the, the fact that there's um, effort involved in getting to the, getting to the location of sacrifice. On the other hand, the accent of the whole chapter is on uh, the joy and festivity that Israel in, enjoys at the, at the place that the Lord chooses. It's going to be, be a place where they bring their offerings. Verse 6 lists seven different kinds of things that they bring to the central sanctuary. Uh, ascension offering, sacrifices, that's that's a form of peace offering, or that's a term for peace offering. Tithes, contributions, votive and free will offerings are species of peace offerings. Firstborn, these are all brought to uh, the sanctuary. But then uh, when they get them there, especially the sacrifices, the free will offerings, the votive offerings, when they get there, they're slaughtered in order to be eaten and so that Israel can eat and rejoice uh, before the Lord. So the, uh, the accent is on eating and rejoicing, the, eating especially. I think uh, uh, the verb eat is used 18 times in the chapter, uh, and uh, eating meat is used repeatedly. Eating meat uh, in, the, in the environs of the sanctuary, eating meat in your gates if you want to do it at home. Uh, there's this emphasis on festivity and joy. We talked about this in the past when we talked about the sanctuary. Uh, and the sanctuary is a restricted place. Uh, Israelites can't go into the sanctuary. Priests alone can. Nobody goes into the most holy place. And yet, the whole point of having a place that the Lord chooses, a place for the Lord's name, is to open it up as a place of hospitality to welcome his people. So they bring their offerings, but then they bring their offerings and offer the Lord his portion, and then he just distributes the rest of it to Israel, uh, and they all eat and drink and rejoice. One way perhaps we could think about this, at least with an analogy, is the way in which a family can be brought together by a central site of celebrating their feasts, things like Thanksgiving or Christmas, all gathering together to the grandparents and enjoying in that context a celebration of the goodness that they have enjoyed over the past year, their thanksgiving to their family and how they have provided. And in a situation like that, you can imagine if the grandparents die, there is no longer a central sanctuary, a central place where they're all gathering together to feast. 
and everyone can celebrate in their own families, and there's less of a sense of all belonging to the same family and sharing in the same goodness. And having this central site of worship is one of the ways in which the nation will be held together in collective thanksgiving and recognition of each other. And um, I think in this context of Susanna's family, where they have a central, or not exactly central, but a location that everyone can easily reach within um, Mystic, where everyone gathers together and celebrates every few years um, the family. And it's been in the family for five generations. There is a sense of collective ownership of that place and recognition of each other in the context of that place. And if there were not that place, everyone would just divide into their own locations and lots of different centres would arise. But the fact that there is one property that everyone returns to on these fixed occasions gives the family its unity, gives a sense of common purpose and identity. And in many ways, this is the central site of celebration for Israel in the context of which they can be one nation. Were it not for this, everyone would just divide into their own regions where they were settled, and there would be a loss of the glue that keeps the family together, which on the one hand is the central gathering, and also the fact that there are Levites dispersed throughout them that are connected to that central location. And that analogy, I think, with our own family celebrations, maybe helps us to understand part of the dynamic that would occur if there were not this central sanctuary. Yeah, and consistent with that, of course, is the emphasis on inviting and welcoming not just uh, your immediate family, but also members of the household, and as you mentioned, Levites. And then when, uh, when Deuteronomy gets to talking about specific festivals in a couple of chapters, uh, there's that's going to be expanded further. So it's you, your sons, your daughters, your male and female servants, the Levite who's in your gates, the widow, the orphan, and the stranger are all invited to share in the festival. And so it's um, it's it's the whole people that are gathered, and it's it's crossing all these different classifications and classes of people. James mentioned earlier Peter's comment in Acts 15 about the burden that neither the fathers nor they were able to bear and releasing the Gentiles from it. I think we need to be careful about how we identify exactly what that burden is. Um, because the emphasis here in Deuteronomy 12, indeed in Deuteronomy as a whole, is on rejoicing uh, and joy uh, and eating, eating as a communal event uh, of uh, celebration. And, that in itself couldn't have been burdensome and wasn't intended to be. And I find it just fascinating. Again, so many people that I talk to as a pastor think that the Hebrew scriptures and the Israelite ritual system was just dour and death-oriented. Indeed, it is death-oriented. You're killing animals all the time. There's a smell of death all over the place. But that's only part of it, it always resolves itself into uh, a dinner, into feasting, into rejoicing. And that comes across here in, in Deuteronomy 12. Um, and and surely as a reminder to Christian churches today, especially if I might be so bold as to say, Reformed Presbyterian churches, that um, there really ought to be a lot more happiness and joy um, in our services than is typical, uh, even if we gather in reverent fear, which we should, I think the trajectory of the service ought to be to end with joy and peace and happiness. Um, and yet sometimes some of our churches can be even more, I don't know, sad and, and uh, dark than any of the Israelite services ever were apparently, according to this, or ever were intended to be at least. So I think we specify the kind of Catholic that Jeff wants to become. He wants to become a charismatic Catholic. I think that's I think that's where we're arriving under the pressure of Deuteronomy 12. <laughs> is is that better or worse than a non-charismatic Catholic? I'm not sure. <laughs> Another aspect of this 
um, we could reflect upon is the difference between Israel's practice of a central sanctuary, which enabled the people to recognize their commonality and their unity, and the sort of um, commonality and universality that operates within the church. So the early church really arose out of two central gatherings at the time of the Passover, the time of Christ's death, and the time of Pentecost, the time of the gift of the Spirit. Both of those occasions were occasions when Jews from all over were gathering into Jerusalem and seeing these events that were the dawn of the um, age of the church. And then the church's life is not one with a central sanctuary. There was a certain focus upon Jerusalem for the early years, but by the time of Acts 15, there's very much a movement out and um, maybe there's a polycentric and then a diffuse order to the church where the commonality is really expressed more through cosmopolitan travel between locations and centers rather than in terms of a central sanctuary to which everyone is gathering. And it would be interesting to reflect upon that as a movement in the John 4 direction, for instance, from the um, Jerusalem or Samaria, which is the appropriate site of worship. The new focus of worship is worshipping in, in the Spirit. The Spirit is the, um, the reality and the realm within which, spirit occur, within which worship occurs. And the unity of the church is experienced in a very different way from that achieved by the central gathering. But nonetheless, it, it, it remains no less important that the church experiences its unity and commonality and um, universality in a way, even if it's in a different mode. And it is in a different mode because it's appropriate that it's not the central gathering. But that continued mode of recognizing commonality, but in a different mode from centrality, I think is worth reflecting upon. I want to go back to uh, the prohibition of blood for just a moment, and that's uh, in verses 20 through 24. This is the uh, part when the Lord extends your borders and you have a desire to eat meat. That's The Lord affirms that desire. Meat, meat, we say. Uh, and it's okay for that desire to be fulfilled. Uh, but as long as you don't eat the blood, verse 23 and 24 say. And verse 24 basically repeats what's given in Leviticus 17 as the rationale for not eating blood you shall not eat it you shall pour it out on the ground like water you shall not eat it in order that it may be well with you sorry verse 23 you shall not eat the blood for the blood is the life you shall not eat the life with the flesh there's four prohibitions about eating blood here uh, and the reason why you don't eat blood is because life uh, the life of the flesh is in the blood that's the that's the language of leviticus 17 uh here the blood is the life. That's also found in Leviticus 17. Um, and I, I think that the way I the way I under understand this, I can think about this in the uh, in the light of what's what's said in back in uh, Deuteronomy 8. If I'm remembering correctly, um, the Lord gave them manna, tested them with manna in order that you might know the man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that, or by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Uh, they receive life. Not from bread, they receive not. We don't receive life from flesh, even. And one ritualized sign of that is the fact that they take the life out. So if you remove the blood, then you're taking the life out of the flesh, and what you eat is dead flesh. And the life that you get from the dead flesh is actually life that's coming from what proceeds from the mouth of God, is not coming from the flesh itself. So uh, seems that seems to be the maybe the theological rationale for not eating not eating the blood, as if they could derive life from some created substance. It's also an acknowledgement that the Lord is the Lord of life. Yahweh is the Lord of life. Uh, and uh, by pouring out the blood, they're, they're acknowledging that uh, they do this, they kill on the permission of God, um, and they're offering the life to God. Another dimension of this is to think in terms of how this contrasts with what's going on in the New Covenant, because we move from a prohibition of eating blood um, because the life uh, is in the blood, because the blood is the life, to a situation where Jesus commands his disciples to eat blood. Uh, 
it's not it's not a total discontinuity because in the uh, at the Jerusalem Council, eating blood is prohibited. The kind of eating blood that Deuteronomy 12 prohibits is also in force for Gentile believers. They're not supposed to eat eat blood with the with the flesh. That that's a uh, that's a continued prohibition. But Jesus uh, Jesus commands his disciples to uh, drink his blood. So I think I think the 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 key to understanding that shift is to realize the the significance of flesh. The life of the flesh is in the blood. You don't eat the life that's in the flesh. Uh, Jesus is not offering us the blood of flesh. He's offering the blood of the risen Christ. He's offering the blood that comes from the spiritual body. That is his. Uh, he's offering himself as the one who's been raised from the dead, uh, rather than the one who's in the flesh. He now lives in the spirit, and that's the life that he gives to us. So it's uh, it's consistent with the with the exhortation of Deuteronomy eight that uh, we live by what proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus gives himself as life for us, uh, which is not living by the flesh or living by the blood that comes from the flesh. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.